0: This is The Science of Sex, a podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Hosted by Dr. Jana, a sex researcher and professor of human sexuality at NYU, and Joe Partavilla, the guy who's a fan of sex. Hey now. Here's Dr. Jana and Joe. Oh, Dr. Jana, I forgot how beautiful your face looked.
1: Aww, it's so been, nice to see you too. It's been so long. How were your holidays? Holidays were amazing. Yeah. You
0: got out of town, right?
1: Philippines. Philippines. I was there too. How Worrying did I not that? run into you in the
0: Philippines? <laughs> well, there
1: are 7,000 islands in the oh, Philippines, okay. so you might have been on a different island.
0: That's, that's probably exactly what it was. And, and mm-hmm. the fact that I didn't leave my living room for 10 days ah. had something to do with it as well.
1: So, so you were in the Philippines in your imagination.
0: Exactly. Okay. Yes. As yeah. I've said before, I live vicariously through, through you. Me. You yes, tell yes. me what's going on, and then I'm like, <laughs>
1: all right, that sounds kind of cool. The Philippines are gorgeous.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. All good. You surf, right? Uh-huh. Wow. You don't strike me as a surfer. Why not? I don't know. Maybe because you're like on a scholarly. I can't see it like a professor on a surfboard.
1: Yes, I am the professor on a surfboard. All right. That sounds kind of cool. I'm not the best surfer out right. there by no means, but I like to... Be on the board. Catch okay. Waves.
0: Now you're originally from Macedonia. Is there surfing yes, there?
1: There is no surfing in okay. Macedonia. Macedonia is landlocked. All right, good. We good. have no access to the sea. No. Again,
0: I'm proving why I'm the college dropout, and you are the professor. You, I didn't know Macedonia had no water near it. So, <laughs> it's, it's. I'm always learning something every day with you, Doctor Jana. To be
1: fair, most. College non-dropouts, college graduates have in the U.S. have no idea where Macedonia is or that Macedonia exists.
0: Oh, look at you giving me a little ego boost. Thank you very much. So don't
1: feel too Uh, bad about it. All
0: right. All right. Cool. All right. So I won't feel bad about that. What do we
1: have today on the program? Today we're going to talk to Dr. Justin Garcia from Indiana University about something that all the kids and not-so-kids are doing these days, sexting.
0: Surf's up. The Science of Sex. Foreplay. Speaking of the Philippines, didn't you go to the Philippines with your ex,
1: Dr. Jana? I did. He was one of the people who was there with us. Yeah, we had a big group of people, but he was one of the people.
0: But he was there. He was there, yeah,
1: yeah. and then we went surfing, just the two of us. Okay, the reason, I I didn't bring this up
0: randomly. There's a reason for me for mentioning the fact that you were there with your ex. Apparently sex with the ex was big over the holidays. Oh, yeah? A lot of singles said that's what they did over the holiday season. A survey of 2,000 singles by Plenty of Fish found that roughly one in three admit they've hooked up with an ex over the holiday season. As you know, I'm not good at math. Is one in three, is that a High number?
1: Oh, you're not that bad.
0: No, I'm I'm pretty bad. Yes. So one and three. I mean, that's
1: that's pretty high. I would say. I, now I don't know if the question was whether they've hooked up with an ex over this particular holiday season or just ever in and general. Any holidays, yeah. Any holiday season. But yeah, I guess that's a that's a pretty decent number. But I mean, sex with an ex is not that uncommon in general. Like uh you know, a lot of people, a lot of people do that. You have a big smile that. on your
0: face while you're saying this. <laughs> it's not very
1: uncommon, right?
0: Well, I will say, you know, here's the. I think I know why people are doing this. Because over the holidays, if Mm -hmm. you're single, there could be some loneliness because you're seeing all, especially on social media, you're seeing all, all your friends posting pictures Mm. of like uh, family around the tree, opening gifts. Everyone's everyone's having fun, and if you're single, kind of sort of run to something you know.
1: Sure, I mean that the holiday season is a time of being with the people that you already know, mm-hmm. family, established friends, you know, close people who are close to you. Most people are not in finding new partners kind of mode. Yeah. Right. Because everybody is sort of with their families and and close friends. And so it makes sense that if you don't have a partner, then you would maybe go back to someone you know. Now that is not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. Going back to sex with an ex has some benefits. Part of the reason why you were together was that sex was good, mm-hmm. and so this is kind of a reliable way of getting good sex. There's also a pretty good chance that there are some emotions still sure. left over that you both feel for each other, even though you've decided that you're not a good long-term match in general. But there's still some intimacy and and closeness that can fill that that need for intimacy and closeness. Yeah. So that's it, it's a pretty good person to go back to for both sexual and emotional needs
0: all right because you know me I, i'm the optimist but what, what if i were to look on the, the i was to be a pessimist today what, What's what's on the dark side of that
1: <laughs> well what do you think is on the dark side of that I don't why know. why would it be a bad thing to hook up with your ex
0: I mean, I guess because once it's over, you gotta see them again. I don't know what, what's what's. what I don't. I, I don't You've have. You've never had an ex. You I'm, haven't had an
1: ex in 22 years. I've never had an ex
0: that I've hooked up with it again. No. Once once I burn that bridge, I I, I kind of firebomb it. I napalm that bridge, and there's nothing left to go back.
1: To be fair, the last time you broke up with someone, you were like 12. Right? All
0: right, all right. <laughs> you have to be so literal. Yes, it's been quite a while. Or 18. Right, sure, all right. But again, i have napalm that. There's no need to go back to that. I'm not like you who stays friends with all your ex.
1: I don't do that. I like that. saying friends with exes. If there was something good between you and that person mm-hmm. for whatever amount of time that you were together, yeah. six months, a year, two years, ten years, okay. then clearly there is there is a lot there between you that brings you together. This right, person- but if there's a
0: reason that you don't want to see each other anymore, that's got to be a good enough reason not to no, see that person no. again. No,
1: Just because you don't want to spend the rest of your life together it doesn't mean that you don't want to see each other anymore. And, of course, some relationships end yeah. with that feeling that this person did something terrible to you or you did something terrible to them and and one of you doesn't or both of you don't want to ever see each other ever again or speak with each other ever again. And my relationship endings tend to be very amicable. They tend to be like, okay, this was great while it lasted. It is no longer amazing. So we don't want to spend the rest of our lives together anymore, but I still like you and I still see all the good things that I saw in you up until two months ago or two we- two years ago, and so I still want to be friends and see, you're be an, nice and civil. You're an outlier,
0: and, though. You're like you're like in a Sex Neverland. There, no, <laughs> most people don't have many a- amicable breakups. There, uh, well, I, I think mean, that's there could that's be some, sad. but there there could mm-hmm. be a couple. But you make it you make it sound like all your breakups are all like, hey, that was great. It was you know unicorns and rainbows. But in in most cases, I think most a lot of people probably feel like you know either someone. Cheated on someone, or they got the nerve so much that they had to break up with them, or they hit him yeah, in the face.
1: But I think that's sad, that's and that doesn't have to be that way. I think our society kind of leads us to have these stories around relationships and breakups and how they end as something that has to be, you have to like reinterpret the entire story as something horrible or awful. And often I think it happens because people end up staying in in bad relationships or relationships that are no longer satisfying for mm-hmm. people way too long and then by the end they by the time they finally end them things have gotten so bad that they don't want to see the person ever right. again i don't do that i don't stay in relationships where one of us is no longer happy and satisfied, I end my relationships when it's time for them to end, so that they can end on a good note. All right. I also don't find cheating the worst possible no, I thing know. that people can, can do to I each know. other. So you know, that's I a have conversation. A, I have a non-monogamous, <laughs> yes. you know, poly kind of way of thinking about things. So anyway, point being, <laughs> yes. we totally derailed yes, you uh, have. the conversation <laughs> into something else. But I think. So don't yeah. get it. All right, can I ask you a question? Yeah. All right,
0: Because maybe this is, some, this is a learning experience for somebody. Oh, okay. All right, so you've broken up amicably with with partners, correct, right? It sounds like it. You've done yes. it. Yes. Okay. What,
1: I mean, uh, I haven't had that many relationships. Really. No, so no, no. But I'm just saying you've three broken or, Okay. Three really long-term and then maybe a couple of shorter-term Give
0: ones. me an example of how that breakup conversation went. Was it on the phone? <laughs> was it via text? Like, of the, these amicable breakups, was it like, <laughs> no, do you start were. with the we have to talk because that's always a bad sign like i mean this could be a good learning moment for people out there uh,
1: no i don't i don't break up over text okay it's but these are also very for me these have been very serious long-term relationships uh, two of them were live-in relationships where we would discuss these things and discuss what are the things that are not working out, and should we maybe separate? Is it is it that time to separate? And that's and that's enjoy? exactly what
0: you say. You would just come out like, "Hey, listen, this is not working out." Yeah,
1: you know, that, you have are you very blunt? I'm just trying to say for people like who want to... I know, but there is, no, there is no one like way to do it. Okay. It all depends on what are the issues and how you communicate. I tend to be pretty open in our communication with, with my partners. And so if things aren't working out, we talk yeah. about them. And then if things... Maybe you you try to work on some of those things that are not working out, and then you get to a point of being like, "Look, I don't think this is going to work out, no matter how much we work on this." Okay. Maybe, what do you think about separating and going our own separate ways? With that ways? tone, you'd say just like that. With that, I uh, yeah, I do tend to be pretty. Wow. That's even keeled. yeah there's no yelling and screaming and you know there might be some sadness and yeah at least, i mean the the most recent breakup right with my with my ex-husband is is the most recent in my yeah, memory yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the the previous ones were a long time ago but yeah it was very calm very it almost radical, sounds like a business cool. agreement
0: kind of thing it's not a
1: business agreement but this is a person that i've spent seven years of my life with and mm. we know each other very well and we care about each other and we love each other and if we're not Satisfying each other's needs anymore to the point of wanting to be a couple, then we find a way to transition our relationship into something else, which in our case is roommates with the occasional benefits.
0: Wow, that's cool. Hey, listen, God bless you. Just like I, I just know that relationships tend to be pretty emotional, and yeah. the fact that you're able to make it almost make it sound to me like a business <laughs> transaction, like be like, all right, so here's the deal. Uh, I don't like you anymore, and we shouldn't see each other anymore, and and uh, good luck with you, you know that kind of thing. That's what almost makes it. it it's it which is like pretty that cool. That
1: I do like him still, yeah. and he likes me. Yeah. We just don't want to be a close married couple anymore. That's cool.
0: No, I think I think that is just
1: want to be friends.
0: That's a teaching moment for people out there because we've talked about how breakups can be pretty emotional, and they can be. And again, yeah.
1: it, it really depends on what happened. Obviously, yeah. someone did something bad to the other person. Right. Like that's a very different scenario than the scenario that I just experienced. Yeah, no, and absolutely. So um, I just think that there are. Other ways that not every relationship needs to be complete uh, ending and, and hate and anger and all of that very often it's going to be. Now, that said, there are costs. To hooking up with the next De- again, depending on what the situation is, if one person still has feelings of the "I want to get together" mm. or "I want to get back together" kind, and then you're hooking up with them, that that might put them on a on sort of a downward spiral of sure. maybe disappointment or remembering all the good things that they wanted yeah. and they can't get or whatever. So I think it's a healthy thing to do. It's a you know a, a good way to get some of those needs satisfied, both sexual and emotionally yeah. satisfied, if both people are sort of more or less on the same page about the relationship being over as a relationship. The reason why that's often a problem is that
0: Usually one person's a little yeah. heavier than the other, when right? When relationships end, yeah. very
1: rarely is it completely mutual on both ends. Very often you have the the person breaking up and the person being broken up with. Right. And the person being broken up with doesn't want it to end. So for them, it's not always the healthiest situation. So it really depends on what the deal is yeah. with both people. Who and it makes matters
0: this. worse, too, if you think about it. Because these one in three that have sex with the ex, you don't even know what happens after that. Because maybe they feel like, oh, does this mean we're back together?
1: Exactly, exactly. So that
0: opens up a whole other Mm -hmm. kettle of worms Mm -hmm. that we... uh we, we, yeah,
1: so I think it's it's important for people to be very clear about what something like a, a holiday hookup with the ex means yeah. to e- each person involved.
0: I mean, if it's if you were in the situation, it'd be more of like an agreement. So here's the deal: we're going to hook up over the holidays, uh, we're going to have intercourse, and then afterwards we'll text each other back and forth. But we, other than that, that's about it. Okay, cool. All right, let's go. This, yeah, that yeah, sounds that sounds, sounds, about about right. Right. <laughs> sounds like the Philippines <laughs> to me. <laughs> The science of sex goes deeper.
1: In a recent paper published in the journal Sexual Health, researchers from Indiana University surveyed a nationally representative sample of almost 6,000 single U.S. adults ages 21 and over about their sexting experiences, sexting being defined as sending and receiving sexually explicit text messages or photos. It turns out that about 20% of U.S. singles have uh, sent a text and about twenty eight percent have received a text about fifteen percent sent a sexy photo of themselves and about twenty three received a sexy photo of someone else now many people were uncomfortable with unauthorized sharing of sex beyond the intended recipient, yet 23% of those who had received a sex image reported sharing it with others, on average, 3.2 friends.
0: Oh, why go going to do that?
1: I know. <laughs> oh, boy. So here with us today to discuss sexting and the risks and benefits is the lead author of this paper and one of my favorite sex researchers out there, Dr. Justin Garcia. Dr. Justin Garcia is Ruth Hall's Associate Professor of Gender Studies and Associate Director for Research and Education at the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University in Bloomington. Dr. Garcia holds an M.S. in Biomedical Anthropology and a Ph.D. in Evolutionary Biology from Binghamton University. His research interests focus on the evolutionary and biocultural foundations of variations in things like monogamy, intimacy, dating, and sexual behavior. He has published extensively and has co-authored with Peter Gray the book Evolution and Human Sexual Behavior and is a co-editor of Evolution's Empress, Darwinian Perspectives on the Nature of Women. He has been a scientific advisor to several industry partners, including KY Brand, Tiva Women's Health, Women Care Global, and the online dating company Match.com. Dr. Justin Garcia, welcome to the Science of Sex podcast.
2: Hi, thanks for having me on.
1: Let's talk about sexting. <laughs> sexting has gotten some serious media coverage in the U.S. Uh, in the last, I don't know, a few years. Set the stage for us a, uh, here a bit. What have been some major sexting-related news and scandals, and, and what issues have they raised that we want to answer with some of our research?
2: Sure. Sure. I think there's, um, I think there's been a lot of different uh, questions and issues about how people are moving their both their romantic and their sexual lives uh, to sort of digital platforms, ranging from how people might be using sexting, uh, broadly defined as the sending of erotic messages and/or images or films perhaps to flirt with new partners to try and attract new partners but also to try and have some eroticism between existing partners so there's a lot of questions swirling around around about who you're sexting with uh, why you're sexting and then at the same time there's been some larger conversations about whether how dangerous it is whether or not it we want to think of it as a high-risk behavior whether or not there's um, consequences some psychologists been interested in psychological consequences things like self-esteem and depression there's also been a couple of scandals, of course, with sort of uh, known politicians who have been sending, uh, and celebrities who have either had their sex images stolen and hacked, um, which I think raises questions about the non-consensual distribution of one's erotic material. Uh, and then at the same time, people who are perhaps married and engaging in some form of sexting infidelity. There's been a couple of high-profile cases of politicians, and there's also been some high-profile cases of adolescents engaging in sexting, and par, one of the many complexities there is that in some states, the sharing of erotic images between youth, between adolescents, actually qualifies as child pornography. Yeah. So there's a lot of complicated issues uh, when we talk about sexting in adolescents. So there's, I think there's a lot of different places that uh, researchers like you and I have started to jump on these questions and think about what what are we we use our phones so much how does that integrate into our into our sex life
0: when did it start do we know like is there like i mean obviously the i think we just celebrated the 25th anniversary of like the first text so how long yeah. has sexting really been a thing oh that's
2: a great question you know i have a colleague who's um a few decades older than me and we were talking about sexting one day and she said you know when i was young um we just had polaroid images that we'd <laughs> give people so i the... I think the phenomena of sharing erotic images and messages is certainly nothing new. We know that historically and even in the more recent history uh, so that part's not new when it became digital um i don't think i don't have a good sense of when I think that that is sort of part and parcel of how the rise of the internet and the rise of mobile technologies. And how that's being integrated into our romantic and sexual lives. So my guess is probably shortly after the rise of using phones and emails and texting. Uh, and the Pew Center reports that it's, you know, it's over 80% of Americans across age categories and text, uh, at least
0: occasionally now.
1: 80%? Yeah. yeah,
0: so I think it's close to 85% yeah. across all age categories. It's funny, though, because the first text, like I said, was 25 years ago. It was Merry Christmas. That was the oh, first yeah? text <laughs> ever sent. And I was wondering when this I think this the ca-
1: second one was, and I would love to fuck you on Christmas or something. Well, I <laughs>
0: wonder what like, the guys who came up with the texting device, I think it was in England. Do you think they could have ever imagined it would become this? Like, I'm sure that would have been the last thing on their mind, that this would be used as like a like a sex tool, you know? And now all of a sudden, it is part of our everyday vernacular. Sexting, grandmothers know what sexting is, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: It is, it's a great question i wish we someone some, someone out there has got to help us figure this yeah. out i do uh, uh at least in it's it's popular it's how it became so popular in a, in a relatively short period of time. Um,
1: but, I mean, i we really surprised any method of communicating with people is going to be used for all sorts of communication, yeah. including sexual communication. And and as Justin was saying, it's it's nothing new that we want to share sexual thoughts and ideas and images yeah. with our partners or potential partners. So, of course, the people who created it had to have known that.
0: Yeah, it's funny. We have a sex museum here. I wonder if they have the first sext ever sent... You know,
1: <laughs> like yeah, in,
0: a, was in, in a plaque or something.
2: Uh, yeah, they yeah, need screenshots. Uh, <laughs> it, I, I think one of the pieces that, uh, uh, for me, uh, as a scientist, when I look at sexing the One of the issues that I find particularly interesting about it is that because it's on a mobile platform, because it's uh, digitally shared, it does change the potential risks uh, insofar as it can be distributed rather widely. So if you give someone a Polaroid of you or you send someone a love note or even a sex note, um, that is a little bit more contained. They might show it to someone who's at their house or they might carry it with them. But the sense is that it's a little bit more contained. But with the rise of the internet and mobile technologies, you send a sex to someone, and it could it could be everywhere. Right. Uh, right. They could share it with dozens of others. Um, and that and for the most recent study we did, that was the question that we were really trying to get a better sense of: is does this mobile technology what what really is the potential risk of sexting? And I think that I think the non consensual distribution of it pretty broadly. Uh, allowed by technology is is really the only potential risk. Uh, maybe I shouldn't say only, but that's my my own <laughs> sense of what the, risk the is.
1: greatest risk. Right. You mentioned some people are thinking about sexting as a high risk behavior in a way, or that something that might be harmful aside from the the potential for for non consensual sharing. Is this something that carries some psychological negative correlates, or is this part of a normal sexual development?
2: So you, you you hit the bail on the, I think some of the biggest debates um happening right now among people who are working on sexting. There has been some literature that suggests that for some people sexting could be associated with things like lower self-esteem and and uh other things that we might you know, find concerning psychologically, certain types of um, uh, personality traits, certain types of affective and mood orientations. On the other hand, there's been other literature that suggests that those effects go away if you have a large enough sample or if you uh, control for things like whether or not they wanted to send it or whether they felt coerced about sending it. Mm. So it's, the literature is the literature's kind of dicey, when we first picked this up, I remember thinking like, wow, this stuff is all over the place, but why? There, there were a lot of really good studies, but had different effects, and I think the part of it is tr- tr- really trying to get a sense of on who. You know, are you talking about adolescents, or are we talking about adults, are we talking about small senses of self-esteem, or are we talking about clinical criteria for negative self-esteem and depression? Um, so, the studies have looked at different things. Overall, I think where a lot of the literature has been going is that if it's consensual sending, if it's not coerced or feels coercive to people sending it, there doesn't seem to be that many really problematic psychological risks uh, associated, what, what we might call psychological risks associated with sexting behavior. And to the second point of what you said, is it part of normal sexual development? I think the literature more and more is starting to point. To, towards that direction, that this is engaging in erotic and sexual activity, including sharing sexual and erotic material and sharing one's own sexuality, whether that be through a picture you take and send to others, that for many people, this can be a uh, an aspect of sexual development in our sort of modern technological world. Right. It's maybe not the way our, our parents or grandparents did it, but it's uh, we live in a different it,
1: world from the one we, that our parents and grandparents lived in. So
2: Exactly. And young people, I mean, they're so connected to technology that this is a way that they're integrating their sexual lives. So,
1: so I think there are
2: some risks, but it depends on whether or not it's really, co- uh, you know, I think as, as in some of your work, you've categorized the sort of a- internal or external uh, factors that are getting one to engage mm-hmm. in these behaviors. And, and when they're more internal Um, they're more because you want to send it or because you want to flirt with a partner or you find it fun. That They tend to be associated with less of the more concerning psycho-emotional, psychosocial variable.
1: Right. And when you say coerced uh, sex thing, are you talking about people receiving sex that they did not want to receive, like the infamous dick pic that a lot of women end up getting? Or are you talking more about like someone nagging you to send them something.
2: Yeah, that's uh, that's. Um, – I'm thinking – I'm talking more about, like, when uh, there's been a little bit of work of, like, in where, let's say, a young guy might say to a young girl, you know, send me a picture, I really want one if you care about me, or a young woman might say to a young guy, mm. you know, well – um, you have, you've sent them to other people. Why not me? You know. So we've seen right, some of right. that work, where, where it's almost a sort of a, a type of emotional manipulation to try and get it, right. um, because because then people aren't sending it because they want to send it, and then that because that's where you start to see some of the, uh, the more think, concerning aspects. Mm. Yeah. But your point about dick, the sort of quote-unquote dick pics uh, or the sort of sending images of genitals unsolicited, I think that's a whole other ballgame. We, in one of our studies, in our Singles in America study with Match.com, we asked about, uh, last year, asked about unsolicited uh, messages. And what we found was that there were a lot of, uh, particularly women, who reported receiving sort of uh, unsolicited pictures, dick pics, mm-hmm. uh, genital pictures. Um, and it's, it was interesting because... Uh, I think we so in our data we found that 90% of women said that they are totally unaroused by a dick pic. Uh wow. so despite that, the 9 in 10 women saying that, despite that, uh we saw really high rates of men um sending it. I think it was 45% of straight single men said they wanted to turn the other person on and 39% said it was to flirt. Um and the other another 39% said to get the other person to send one back. <laughs> but <laughs> But pretty high rates, 45% of men saying it's to turn their partner on. Meanwhile, it's 9 in 10 women saying this. I find this totally (laughs) unarousing. So... At least in a heterosexual
0: context. It uh, doesn't seem um, to
1: have a lot of, uh, yeah. you know, The math
0: doesn't seem to work yeah. out there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, when you said the 9 and 10, was there any breakdowns in terms of where they would accept it, but it just doesn't do anything for them, or just basically 9 out of 10 said they don't want it?
2: What well, we saw in our data, at least in that, in that study, was a lot of women, particularly straight women, saying that uh, they, they were happy to get it if they asked for it, but they didn't, on average, they really didn't want uh, unsolicited uh, genital mm-hmm. pictures. So it's some refer to it as almost a a violation that you know Mm -hmm. you're messaging with someone about going on a date or even maybe engaging in sexual activity and then get this image that you maybe weren't prepared for or you didn't want Um, and so doing it as a sort of surprise hey does this turn you on surprise Um, (laughs) uh, by and large heterosexual women were saying like no I'm not turned on by it and I really don't want it
1: it's like the online equivalent of flashing someone on the street
2: yeah yeah right yeah I mean, if you ask for it, it could be great. Sure. uh, And I think that actually one of the untapped questions, there's been some work by Michelle Druin, who's a really uh, excellent psychologist who's done a lot of work on sexting, and one of her recent papers has started to get at this question, and I think it's one of the, for me, one of the more interesting questions left to ask in this literature, is for some people, particularly for some couples, sexting actually might be beneficial to their sex life. It might increase feelings of arousal and eroticism, Mm. and it might turn people on. It might actually increase, I have a hypothesis that it might increase partner closeness for some people um, because of shared risk. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but for, by and large, if it's, that's if you want it, that's if you're engaged in some kind of sexual relationship with someone, you're expecting it, you've agreed to it, but this sort of uh, doing it where it's not agreed to or asked for, I think (laughs) is a lot Mm. easier. Yeah. And a bad idea, guys. A bad idea.
1: A bad idea. <laughs> do not do that. Yes. Okay. So you're just sharing some not yet published data with us, right? About this unsolicited dick pics and all that. Yeah, exactly. Ooh, that is so exciting that <laughs> our listeners are getting an exclusive. Yeah, an exclusive first uh, yeah. scoop. A dick pic exclusive. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Oh, great. (laughs) We should call this episode Dick Pick Exclusive.
0: (laughs) Did that study figure out why people do unsolicited, why they send unsolicited dick pics?
2: So uh, part of it was that um, some people were doing it because they they thought it would turn the partner on. Um, In the subsample of uh, gay men, we asked uh, 60% of gay men said they've sent a a dick pic, and uh, 74% said they received one without asking for it, so similar numbers. Um, but their numbers were a little bit more interesting. I think uh, 42% of gay men said they're entertained, and 39 said they became curious. So... There does be or appear to be some differences across demographics like sexual orientation and age uh, and certainly gender. Um, but uh, a lot of people were sending it because they thought their partner would want it. And by and large, they're
1: mistaken. <laughs> right. But I think what's going on, it, it's a big gender difference, right? The oh, yeah, guys, exactly. obviously the gay guys who are interested in guys are liking, are enjoying these unsolicited dick pics or the majority of them yeah. are. And so the straight guys, they're just thinking like guys, Uh Right? They think I would want to receive an unsolicited genital pick. Therefore, the women must want that as well. So I, I kind of feel bad for them almost that they're not really thinking. They're just kind of projecting their it's like own false equivalency. Well they're yeah. just projecting their own thoughts and, yeah. and desires and hopes and all that on, on their potential partners, uh, which would be perfectly successful if their partners were other guys. guys. Yeah. Their problem <laughs> is that their partners are women yeah. who have different desires and interests and expectations.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I mean I don't wanna over categorize. There were some gay men um, that were still saying, you know, I wanna be sure. asked before this yeah. is said. I think your point's spot on. I I think the lesson to walk away from there is that if men um, want to do this because they think it it sort of creates sense, an erotic um, kind of line of communication with a partner, the the simple thing is just ask first. Ask if the partner wants you to send it, if they'd be interested in it. So so I think that's uh, – But maybe it makes it less exciting for them, Mm -hmm. but I think it's a pretty easy – Intervention to make it a little bit more um, pleasurable for all people involved. Right,
1: right. That that is a good take-home yes. message. Tip, <laughs> tips and tricks. Yes. <laughs> all of this data that you just shared with us about unsolicited dick pics uh, or genital pics is not yet published. Right. This is this is soon to be published.
2: Yeah, that's right.
1: Mm-hmm. But you already have a published study out there that has looked into the prevalence of sexting both images and texts and and also how people kind of feel about um, some of this. So tell us a little bit about this sample that you used in that study and also the it's the same sample that you're using in the follow-up study, the Singles in America?
2: Yeah, exactly. So this is so the paper that was published was also from Singles in America, but from a different wave. So the Singles in America project's an annual study we do. It's fully sponsored by the Match.com, the online dating company. We collect every year around close to 5,500 U.S. singles from across the United States. Um, it's demographically representative, so it's based on census distributions, but they're all re- recruited from an opt-in panel um, from a third-party company. These
1: are not Match.com users.
2: Exactly. They're not users. We use a third-party company, um, but Match fully sponsors the study. It is, because so they the, want
1: to know what's happening yeah. with single people. Yeah, exactly.
2: And it's a great partnership where we get to do scientific research on understanding uh, single Americans who now number over 100 million people in the United States. It's about mm-hmm. a third of the U.S. Oh, more than a third of the adult U.S. population, and they get to better understand their their clients.
1: Just to make it clear, how was single defined in that study? So in
2: this wave of singles in America, um, everyone was unmarried, and we also looked at whether they were Single was in truly single, like not dating anyone. And in the sample, it was close to three quarters said that they were completely single. And the other quarter indicated they were unmarried and relatively single, but casually dating someone at the time of the survey.
1: Casually dating. Okay. So it wasn't like a serious. So everybody was not in a serious relationship.
0: That's right. yeah. Right. Or right. a toothbrush over there, but nothing, you know, right from not time an to underwear time. drawer or anything <laughs> like that. No, exactly.
1: Okay, so let's talk about some some of the findings that that you had. How many people? had sexed it?
2: Um, So overall we found that 21% of participants um, said that they had sent uh, sex messages and 28% reported receiving uh, the sex messages uh, with some gender differences. So overall um, men reported uh, sending them a bit more often, um, as you might expect and we also looked at some other demographics things like age and sexual orientation Uh, but in terms of if we look at the gender breakdown, uh, when we asked people have you ever sent a sexually explicit text, it was um, and in the overall sample, about 22% of men and 20% of women, so a pretty small difference. Um, similarly, when we said have uh, you received it, it was around 30% of men and 27% of women. Still somewhat of a small difference. That was when we just broadly asked them about texting. But then we, and later in the study, we also went on to sort of look at both text and photos. So we tried to get a better sense of what that meant. Um, So we asked them, for instance, we asked participants, have you ever received a sexy photo um, or sent a sexy photo of the self? And when we asked just on photos, it was 16% of people overall really no gender difference, so that they've sent one.
1: Fifteen. Um,
2: Fifteen point five percent. Yeah, so close to 16%. 15. So that they've uh, sent a, a quote-unquote sexy photo. So there wasn't really huge gender differences in the, just in the general uh, rates of sending or receiving. Statistically, they were in some cases there were really no differences. Um, but once we introduced other variables, things like age, we saw a difference. So yeah, this was much more common among young people than older people. -hmm. As you might expect, and and things like that.
1: I I think you also found that men were actually more likely to send and receive sexy texts and photos than women, but only among the older participants. That there were basically no gender differences in sending and receiving among the younger population, but the older guys were more likely to send and receive than the older women.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. So we looked at we looked at both um, gender and age and a few other demographics, and then we looked at interaction effects. And I, I think you're pointing out one of the more interesting ones, that when we looked at gender and age, then we started to get some interesting differences about sort of older men and younger men and older women and younger women. Um, so I think that tells us, it tells us a few things. It tells us that in a sample like this, if you just look at gender, you have to also control for... You know different age groups and cohorts and and if we start to look at those different groups we, we sometimes overall might not see a gender pattern, but if we then sort of know that we 're seeing an age pattern and we break the sample up, uh, we can start to find effects which raises the why we need to do these kinds of studies I think to really kind of look tease the data apart, often just cutting it and just saying is there differences between men and women isn 't super informative to you get in there and and start looking at the different um, Intersections of groups. Right,
1: right. But what do you think is going on here with the gender differences in older but not younger people?
2: One of the thoughts we played with is that among younger people, because technology is so widely used, it sort of washes away what we might predict as a gender difference. So many young men and women are using technology. It's so integrated into their erotic life. The, the numbers are, we're not really seeing a big sex difference. But among older people where you're more aware of the risk. It's only the men who probably still want to do it so badly that they are um, sort of overriding that pattern, right? So so there's something going on about use of technology that I think is that in younger generations it's so widespread that we're not really seeing these strong gender effects. But among the older groups where it's not as widespread we are because those that are doing it, are the ones that are, you know, turning to tech more to try and have this erotic life. It's sort of, I think it has to do with sort of teasing apart how technology use varies by age and then at the same time how those gender effects, because predictably we would just expect men to do this more, right, because right. They're a little bit, they tend to be more interested in sexual variety, they tend to be more sexual risk-taking uh, just based on the existing literature. Mm. So I, I think that there's something going on with tech and age that's explaining that effect.
1: Right. And how about sexual orientation differences?
2: So we found um, overall that um, among gay men, they were engaging in sending and receiving sex somewhat more often. A couple of ideas of why that might be the case. Um, One could be that there are more platforms that, at least on average, that gay men have used to uh, communicate with other people in their sort of community or other potential romantic and sexual partners. So for instance, um, like Grindr as an app, I think exchanging sex images on apps like that have uh, been much more common (laughs) uh, among gay men for a longer period of time than let's say the rise of doing this uh, on something like Tinder, which is also not I think nearly as uh, engaging in sexy on Tinder is probably not as widespread as it is on an app like Grindr.
1: Were lesbian and bisexual women more likely to do sex than straight women?
2: So when we looked at sexual orientation, we first looked at it uh, without a gender split. And overall, what we found was that uh, heterosexual participants were 35% less likely to receive sex than bisexual people, gay people, or lesbian people. Um, so when we did the interaction effects of gender and sexual orientation, some of those Um, uh, became less statistically significant. Um, But overall, we see that gay men, lesbian women, and bisexual people um, were engaging in sexting somewhat more on average.
1: Right.
0: Justin's study makes me feel good about guys because when you said we're going to (laughs) talk to Justin about sexting, I thought you were going to say 80% of guys are sending pictures and sexting and everything (laughs) like that. So the fact that some men have restraint it's a good thing, Justin. You should be promoting this more, but this study actually makes men look good to a certain degree. Yeah, yeah that's another way to spin it. I can get on board with that.
1: Yeah. I mean, we really need to get away from this. All guys are just yeah. sexual yeah. kind of monsters that all they're doing is run around trying to fuck as many people as possible. Like That is obviously yeah. not true. Right. Y- exactly. You understand that, right, yeah. Joe? No, I understand yeah. that. Okay. But that's why I'm, I'm
0: here to help. <laughs> I'm here to spread that message there with you, Dr. Jana. <laughs> okay, good.
1: Now let's shift to some of the stuff that you had mentioned earlier about sharing sex, especially photos that someone might have sent and then people are sharing it with their friends or other partners that might not be consensual. So you found that about a quarter of the men and about a fifth of the women who had received a sexy photo from someone else had shared it with others, with an average of three other people, although that yeah. ranged from one to 25 oh. other uh-huh. people. how yeah. <laughs> So and, how big of a problem is this?
2: In the article, in the academic article, we toyed around a little bit with what this might mean, and I think there's been a lot of hysteria about sexting, that it's so bad and it's damaging for young people and for older people and it could ruin your life, and I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that for some people it can be part of normal sexual development, for some people it could be good for a relationship. But I do think that this actually really centers in on what the real risk is, and the real risk, I think, is the non-consensual distribution. So if I send you a message and you send it to a dozen people, I haven't agreed to that, right? I've agreed mm. to send it just, just to you. Um, so uh, I think that's a violation of trust for people who are potentially going to be uh, sexually or intimately engaged in some way. Um, so there's that, there's, and that has psychological consequences. So sort of knowing that you can't trust a partner, mm-hmm. uh, even if it's a even if it's a casual sex partner, just right. knowing that there, there's that. But I think the. Others, it raises a question of whether or not it's a, a form of, sex, of a sex crime. Um, yeah, and, that's and a really interesting people, question. Yeah, and a number of folks, uh, legal scholars, have sort of started to raise that question. We can think of high, you know, high-profile cases like where celebrities have been hacked and their images sent. Well, we, we we think of that clearly as a crime because they've been hacked, right? Someone mm. went into their phone or their computer or their cloud. Right. But in this case, um,
1: when and you've think, consensually shared it with one person yeah. and they've shared yeah. it non-consensually with other people, yeah, should that be a crime? Is that, yeah. Are we going to see that become a crime, you think?
2: I think that there's certainly a lot of conversation happening in, among legal, scho- legal scholars, um, particularly those interested in sexuality, but how we, how we think about this, uh, uh, partly because we're seeing it also among adolescents. So there's a question. There's a number of questions right. about what the, the
1: child what porn the, <laughs> exactly
2: what the legality issues around sexting are, but I think this is one of them. I, I think the non I think the non-consensual distribution is. Uh, we toyed with the idea, and I, you know, I'm not a legal scholar, but I do think it. I I think it's a crime. Uh, you know, at least mm-hmm. uh, in terms of how we think about things like uh, trust uh, in people's intimate lives. I think that's also the main risk. I think the. I don't think sexting is risky per se, unless. It's shared because once it's shared, then all of a sudden there's introduces risk for reputation, for career, for you know you might not you might not want people that you work with to see you you know right. uh, yeah. doing the things you might do in a sex image. And I think and people are entitled to that. I I think entitled to that kind of privacy if they want it. So I think that the the non-consensual distribution is really the risk. Back to Joe's comment before about when I was surprised. This is the number I was surprised with to see that it was on average more than three people. So it's not just you're showing it to your best mm. friend. You're, People are sending it out to groups,
0: group chat. Right, right. It's so easy for them to fix that, though, Justin, with the you know illegal distribution, because it's sort of like you know when you send an email, you always have that like addendum at the bottom that says you're not allowed <laughs> to share or anything. All they have to do is just add that ease oh, to yeah. like your mobile contract <laughs> that says you cannot share this contract, right? Now, I'm not saying I'm, I'm just saying it would be written into like a like your wireless contract or something like that. Messages cannot be shared without the other person's uh, approval. It's sort of like if you v- recorded a football game, you' you couldn't air a football game at a bar without the permission of the NFL. Mm. So they've, they'll probably have to write some something into your contract in terms of, of saving that because they because these phone companies don't want to get sued because that's what's going to yeah. happen. That's interesting.
2: I, I wonder if that's where we're going to go. I think yeah. all right, so today we're going to mark this day Joe made this prediction. Yeah. That's
0: probably <laughs> what we're going to see. It's just I mean it's just a matter of time because it's just you just managing the number of lawsuits that are going to come up with stuff yeah. like this if yeah, exactly. if it is a
1: crime obviously if it becomes a crime yeah. But it
0: had to be a crime mm-hmm. though you could sue someone for personal damages for personal damages yeah. so
1: you think the the phone companies can just protect themselves yeah. against that like if you want to use our service then you can't do this yeah yeah, yeah. moving away from yes. the legal stuff yes. which we're not <laughs> experts on no. but like how worried are people about this you actually had in your in your study you asked people of those who had sexed a sexy photo of themselves to someone how distressed how upset they would be if that person shared it with other people and you found that about uh, over half, like 58% of the men but 87% of the women said, said that they would be upset if the receiver shared that photo with other people. That's a big gender difference.
2: Yeah, um, exactly. And what was one of the questions, um, and we, I mean, we also, so broadly, we asked about whether they believed um, sex and could hurt various aspects of their lives, and it ranged from two-thirds to three-quarters, so roughly 60 to 75% um, for the different categories. It said that it, women. Would,
1: it could hurt their, their reputation, uh, they, career, self-esteem, and current relationships, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. Those were the four categories. Exactly. So it's pretty high numbers of people who so said they felt that sexting could be harmful. But you're centering on this question of uh, the gender difference and how upset they would be. And I, we toyed around this. My collaborator. So this paper was done with a number of really wonderful collaborators. And um, my one colleague, Helen and Fisher, and I were going back and forth on this and she was trying to think about what the gender difference could be. And one possibility is that. I think back to what we were kind of joking about earlier, is that for some men, they almost view it as sort of more playful and more like advertising. <laughs> so I think that's why... They're like, well, if you're going to share it, well, I'd send it to other people anyway. So there was a little bit less of a sense. I think that's different when it's, you know, like you're a politician and, you know, right. you could <laughs> see your face in it and, you know, your career is over. That, uh, that, but that also doesn't represent. I mean, I think other, we're starting to understand that a lot of people are also doing things like not putting their face in a sex image or not having identifying information in the image. Mm. You know, maybe you have a really unique mole on your hip, but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> otherwise you can. Um, trying to do My it problem is
1: the bit, tattoos, man.
2: Safer. Yeah, I exactly you can't you can't get off easy but <laughs> But well, getting off of easy is another running. different point altogether yeah. there. No, <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, fine. <laughs> I'll say what you do. So, <laughs> so I think there's um, there's ways that uh, there's a gender difference and the concern about it, but it also raises questions about how people might um, want to think about sexing smarter, right? Like things like maybe you don't want to have your face or identifying information as much as possible, right? And then if it does get distributed, perhaps it's the risks are a little bit lower. So we can maybe manage or mitigate our own concerns or if, if this is a behavior we still want to do anyway.
1: Right. You also found that younger people were less worried about their, their sex being shared than older folks, both that they would be less upset if that happened, and they also thought that the, the consequences for their reputation, career, self-esteem, and relationships would be lower. Mm-hmm. What do you think is going on there? Are young people just more risk-taking, risk-prone and careless as young people are? Or are we seeing a generational shift towards being more comfortable with having your information out there in the world and including sexual information out there in the world.
2: Yeah, I think you, you've laid out exactly the debate we were having among the co-authors but the sort of collaborators on this project is thinking a bit about why, why that age effect might be there. One of the unique things about our single study is that we can look at these age effects. We're not just restricted to sort of college students or young people. And I, th- I think part, well, part of what might be happening is that both older and younger people are aware of the potential risks or potential for harm. Associated with sex. I think as people get older, they just see more of it. They've see they, as you've got as you get older, you see more people who have had a, a bad go at it, or who have had a uh, lost a job because of it, or lost a relationship because of it, or gotten in trouble, or it's affected their sense of self. And we know just in general, as people age, they tend to engage in less risk. So I think uh, behavior broadly or sensation seeking broadly, it could be a cohort effect with younger people, but I think it it, it might also be. A, a, it could be both, that older people are a little bit more cautious about risk Everything. based on experience. <laughs> (laughs) Yeah, about everything, and also based on experience, either from themselves or those around them.
0: I think young people are more obtuse, too. And I'm sure you've seen this, Justin. Like, if you ever follow someone who's young, who's maybe like 19 or 20, maybe like a student of yours, they'll post pictures of like a frat party doing keg stands and drinking from a funnel and everything like that. And I'm thinking, and and whenever I see that, I'll see someone like a prospective intern applying for a job. I'll be like, why would you think that's a smart idea to put forth that you do keg stands and you're applying for a job? So, young people, I don't think they see anything wrong with. Either sending out a boo pic or a dick pic or showing a picture of themselves, you know, having fun at a party. Because to them, it doesn't. It seems perfectly normal.
2: Yeah, I think you're, I think you're right, and it, and it depends a little bit on who your audience is, right? So for me, if I go on social media, my audience is my close friends, my family, my colleagues. Um, I think if you're in college, your audience might be people you want to be friends, people you want to hang out with, people you want to date, people you want to have sex with. So you might. Be more likely to show off. You might be more likely to show, like, "Hey, I'm fun, and I could be, you know, have a good time, and I can party." They're at a different point in their lives. Some evolutionary uh, folks have sometimes referred to this among men, for instance, as young male syndrome. So, among men, in their you know late teens, early twenties, they engage in a heck of a lot more risks and uh, risk behavior than men who are slightly older. They also die at much <laughs> of a higher rate. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. In part, it's because they're at the peak of their um, courtship years. They're trying to show that they can be kind of spontaneous and and engage in risk and have fun and have social status. So there's a lot of that happening with people in their late teens and early 20s that give us a very different picture of how they're um, displaying. And I mm-hmm. think in many ways, sexting and, and posting is as, as a display of their romantic and sexual lives.
1: Yeah. And that's something, I mean, speaking evolutionarily or as, as human beings uh, more generally, but that's something that happens throughout the world in many different ways. It just so happens that with the technology that we have today and the kinds of lives that we live today, that's how it comes out, right? Like drinking from you know kegs at frat parties, yeah. and being able to take pictures of that. Exactly. Do you also think that young people, I mean, they're just more comfortable with, with having their information shared out there, and then maybe to some extent not being so worried about having sexual information of themselves out there? Like maybe you think we've come to a point where it's more okay to have... A boob pick or a dick pick of you out there.
2: Yeah, my sense is that um, I, there's a part of me that almost hopes that that's the case, that we're seeing these sort of larger cultural attitudinal shifts in young people about sexuality. Um, I think it's a, it, keep, it keeps us all employed, but I think it also, <laughs> um, I think uh, more seriously, I think it's, it's better for people's psychological and physical health. It allows us to talk more openly about sexuality, to research it, to do education on it. Um, but I'm not fully convinced there's been great data that. that that, um, demonstrate that there's certainly been a lots of little pieces of evidence to suggest that there's that, sec, that social norms and mores around sexuality are changing, but there's not been great longitudinal data demonstrating that that's the case, and it's it's hard to disentangle whether it's a cohort effect when we look at age or it's a developmental effect. So is it? Is it that society's changing or is it that people themselves change as they age? Uh, I think it's probably both. I think mm. that evidence sort of centers around it being both, but hard to really definitively say which and how much based on the evidence that I'm familiar with.
0: So we're just about out of time with Justin Garcia, but what is your biggest takeaway from all this research you've done about sexting?
2: Only do it if you want. Do it if you uh, it's something that you're consenting to, that you don't feel coerced to do, but also only send it to a partner that, likewise, um, wants to receive it. Uh, so I think if we can get um, more people to get serious about sexting in ways that they feel good about and the people they're sending it to feel good about, then we're, it's a step in the right direction.
1: And don't share sex that you've gotten non-consensually with other right. people. Like if you want to share it with your friends, ask the person who sent it to you if that would be okay.
2: Yes, absolutely. That one is in bold, exclamation yeah. points, sparklers around <laughs> it.
0: Yes.
1: Because, yeah, eventually not only is it immoral, but eventually it's probably going to become a crime. We'll anyway. make that a crime. We're working
0: on that, Justin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: we're going to get there. Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast.
0: Oh, thanks so much for having me on. This is a such an honor. <laughs> Justin, we'll text you later, right?
1: <laughs> we'll text okay. you later. Yeah. <laughs> Bye.
0: The science of sex
1: afterglow. You know,
0: Dr. Jana, I don't take you as a romantic. What do you mean? <laughs> well, you're very pragmatic about relationships and love. So yes, I'm.
1: I'm pragmatic, but I. Could also sometimes be romantic. Okay. The reason I ask is
0: because a new study out of a university in the Netherlands found that there's really no such thing as love at first sight. Ah. Uh. Now, I'm going to hold <laughs> hold your opinion on that. So, why do some people believe in it? The researchers found that if someone said they fell fallen in love with someone at first sight, it was actually just because they thought the person was very attractive. In other words, you didn't fall in love with that person at first sight. You fell in, quote, I want to get on with that person at first sight. (laughs) And the one more thing, they found that men are much more likely to say they fell in love at first sight than women. Okay. So, Dr. yes, do you believe in love at first sight?
1: (laughs) I believe in very strong lust at first sight that can then lead to love. I think what we're talking about is definitions, exactly what is love and how we define it and what is attraction and, and how that's defined. So usually when you talk about love, from a psychological perspective, you talk about it having one or more of three components. Okay. Passion. Okay. Intimacy and commitment. Like passion being this like strong kind of carnal it's kind of sexual desire, but a little more than just like, I want to have sex with you, but it is this carnal. It's lusty. Lusty. Right? lusty okay. Yeah. You want to. To be carnally united okay. with this other person. Right, that's the first one. Right? So then there's intimacy, which is this vulnerability or level of vulnerability that you've put yourself at in front of this other person. Like opening by yourself up. Opening up, okay. exactly. Cool. You've shared intimate details. They've shared intimate details. So you have this kind of close, intimate uh, understanding of each other and connection okay. and then there's the commitment portion which is dedication to maintaining the relationship to staying being with someone over a longer period of time okay, okay. so you committed to being together
0: so those are the three factors of love.
1: Yeah, those are kind of the t- three components of love. And different okay. types of love can have a different combination of these components. So you can think of friendly love as uh, not having the passion component. Got you. Or a love between two people who've been together for a very really long time doesn't necessarily have a lot of passion, but has a lot of intimacy and commitment. Got it. And so the question, I guess, here is, does this love at first sight have at least one of these components. Well, usually
0: it's the first one, the whole lusty passion (laughs) thing. The lusty passion, right?
1: And I guess what they found is that it didn't really have much of that passion in the beginning. It was just really strong physical attraction, which is somewhat different from... From this passion, passionate love that you feel with someone that requires an additional level of, of closeness. So it's just like you see someone and you're so attracted to them. So
0: attraction and love have nothing to do with each other? Well, no. Of
1: course they have something to do with each other. But they're not one
0: of the components.
1: No. Attraction is you see someone and you feel sexually attracted to them. Okay. So,
0: so that's what it is. So that's why they say that men are more likely to fall in love because they're technically... Not falling in love. They're not They're not falling into those three components. Mm. They're basically just saying that person is super, super attractive. attractive.
1: Yes. Although we found some other data, some other studies have found that men are more likely to say, I love you first, and are more likely to feel like they've fallen in love. Not the love at first sight thing, right. but when people start dating and you ask them when in your relationship did you start to feel like you were in love with this yeah. person, they tend to say that sooner than the women in heterosexual relationships. Interesting. Yeah, even though we often think it's the other way around that women are more likely to fall in love first. or Yeah. But not in romantic relationships necessarily. I see. Love at first sight is a very real phenomenon when you see someone and you like them okay so much more than you would like somebody else because there's a strong attraction there's probably some pheromones doing magic mm-hmm. <laughs> doing their magic in that context there might be some something else that you know about this person that appears really really attractive to you but that doesn't amount to any of these three components Comp- of like love love that takes a little bit longer now what does happen and can happen very quickly is infatuation. Oh. Yeah. So when you have this love at first sight, what really kind of is going on is the very beginnings of potential infatuation then if you go ahead and consummate Mm -hmm. this relationship right you meet someone you feel that way if they feel the same way about you and then you get together and you start spending some time together then you can get to this sense of being in love that is very volatile that's very very intense where you can't stop thinking about the person where that's but is that still love though so that's a type of Those are the beginning stages of love, which is called infatuation or passionate love or... New
0: relationship energy, I've heard that. New relationship energy,
1: yeah. Yeah, In the the poly community, we'll call it new relationship energy, yeah. And it's basically, it's a type of love that has a lot of passion, Mm -hmm. not a lot of intimacy, although the intimacy gets progressively increase. Yeah, I was going to say you speed
0: it up if you're becoming sexually active. But then you don't
1: necessarily have a lot of commitment because that is also something that kind of takes some time to really know that this person is kind of the right person and to really commit to them. And what you also don't have is that deep emotional attachment that develops over time, so it's kind of the cocaine stage of love, where your brain is on its own endogenous I- internal version of of cocaine-like chemicals. Okay, where you're super excited, where you don't need a lot of sleep or food or
0: you're high on life, like, essentially,
1: basically high on love. Yeah,
0: <laughs> high on love, right?
1: In that case, and after a while, you know that doesn't it doesn't last very long. It can't last very long. Our brains can't take that much excitement for an extended period of time. So usually anywhere between six months and maybe a year and a half, depending on how much time you spend together, depending on how much you consummate this this intensity, it's going to wane. And during that time, hopefully enough intimacy and commitment and that deep emotional bond have formed to keep you together. But sometimes... That hasn't happened, which is why many, many relationships end right around that infatuation waning. Because one of the symptoms of infatuation, it's funny how we talk about this as a disease, yeah, right? Yeah, with its yeah. Symptoms. But one of the symptoms is these rose colored glasses that we have. That we put when you'll
0: see past it, it, the flaws of the, the you partner. You just
1: don't see the flaws. Yeah. maybe you see them, but you completely downplay their importance. Right. you're like, oh yeah, that's not a big deal. I can I can deal with that. And
0: you know, and I get that you look past a lot of things, and I that mm-hmm. makes a lot of that makes a lot of sense because you always hear about people who like fall in love with people who are addicts, and so yeah, exactly. Early exactly. on, mm-hmm. it's like, oh okay, this is great. And then you realize once that infatuation Mm -hmm. runs out, like, it really sucks dating a person who's who's a drunk or an alcoholic Mm -hmm. or has trouble with drugs. Exactly,
1: exactly. Basically, those are the different stages. So initially, you you start with attraction. And sometimes that attraction is really, really, really strong, which then people tend to interpret that as love at first sight, like I fell in love immediately. No, you, you can't fall in love immediately. That love takes a little bit of time, right. a little bit of even this initial stage of infatuation type love, even that takes a little bit of time to happen. But initially you have sometimes very strong attraction and sometimes not, right? Sometimes people meet and you have a pretty neutral feeling about that person yeah. and then over time as you get to know them a little better as you start to build some shared history or whatever that's when the attraction gets stronger and stronger and then you, you eventually get together but sometimes that initial attraction is super strong and that's what people will then go back thinking about their beginnings of the relationship and reinterpret that as oh my god that was love at first sight
0: so dr jana believes love at first sight is bullshit
1: i mean it's lost at first sight like really well, come on really love strong at first sight i mean if we're going sight. if yeah. we're going by yes. your
0: scientific <laughs> uh, components of love there's no such thing And, and the ro- yeah. romantic comedies <laughs> that have been out for the last 50 years are all bs none of it is true right
1: it's not love but it's okay. very very strong attraction and love and lust
0: did you have love at first sight with me when on our first podcast oh
1: yeah yeah i totally was love at right, first sight
0: good all right that's enough for this week <laughs> We'll see you back next week.
1: Make sure you rate and review the podcast if you like it so that more people can learn about it. And see you next time.
0: The Science of Sex is produced in New York City. To connect with the hosts, go to drjana.com and joepardavila.com. Like us on Facebook at The Science of Sex Podcast or follow us on Twitter at Science of Sex Pod. For more sex science, read Dr. Jana's column at Forbes.com. This has been The Science of Sex.